Hello, everyone, and welcome to PwC's Talking Tax podcast, a forum for us at PwC to share some perspectives on topical tax matters with a particular focus on how these matters impact industrial manufacturers. I'm John Livingstone, PwC's Industrial Products Tax Leader, and I'm very happy to host today's discussion. This podcast is another in a series we plan to produce while we operate in this current virtual environment. We hope it will serve as a bridge to the day when we can get back to doing our live quarterly webcasts from our Washington, D.C. studios. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find these podcasts beneficial. Today's topic is the OECD's project on tax and the digitalization of the global economy. This is an ambitious project of the OECD and represents potentially one of the more fundamental changes to the existing international framework for taxing multinationals in decades. To provide a sense of its scope, the OECD's economic assessment of the project estimates that as much as $200 billion of income a year would be reallocated between countries under the project's so-called Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 proposals and taxed in a different country than where that income would be taxed today. This would be significant indeed, and while the ultimate outcome of the project is still not certain, it is at a critical crossroads given some recent project blueprints released by the OECD in mid-October. Additionally, the OECD has opened a public consultation process on the proposals that is currently underway and scheduled to end on December 14th, with public hearings on the topic scheduled for January of 2021. Given these new developments, it seems like a very good time for businesses with global operations, and there are many of these in the industrial product sector, to spend some time understanding the latest developments and potentially engage in the public consultation process that is currently underway. So to help us with the latest on the project and to highlight issues of interest to companies in the sector, I am very pleased to welcome to our podcast today, Will Morris, PwC's Deputy Global Tax Policy Leader and a leading observer and participant of the OCD project. Will, thank you for joining me today. John, thank you for inviting me. Great to be here. Okay, so let's jump in. Will, let's start with a brief, how did we get here overview? Why did the OECD take this project on? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, And there are a number of different things which feed into this, but most of it really comes back to BEPS in the end. In a number of different ways, this is unfinished business from BEPS, so-called Pillar 1, which was really sparked by the work that the OECD did on digital tax in the BEPS project, Action Item 1, as it was then, led to a review of that project, which led to, in turn, to this and to the unified approach under Pillar 1. With Pillar 2, There was also a sense that BEPS had not completely closed off all the possible problems around base erosion, and therefore a number of countries wanted to visit this. And it it also feeds into a longstanding discussion on minimum taxes, but was actually triggered really by TCJA and by the US to a certain extent. And both a push and a pull in recent months have been provided by COVID, clearly a barrier to progress in one sense, but a spur to action also in the sense of, you know, massive government spending need for further revenue. So, Will, let's get a bit more detailed on the specific proposals. In October of 2019, the OECD introduced two broad proposals for addressing the tax challenges associated with the digitization of the economy, and after much consultation and debate, issued two new blueprints for Pillars 1 and 2 in October of this year. Without getting into the evolution of these two frameworks, let's spend a few minutes on what each is about. Let's start with Pillar 1, which is essentially focused on two key areas, 
First, it is focused on allocating a greater share of profit to market or end-user jurisdictions and thereby deviating to some degree from the current arm's-length principal standard traditionally used for transfer pricing. Secondly, Pillar 1 creates a new standalone nexus rule that is not dependent on a physical presence. So, Will, recognizing, as I've heard you say in other forums, that there is still much that needs to be worked out, what do you see as the most significant aspects of Pillar 1? Thanks, John. It's a great question. And let's, for the moment, keep this at, at quite a high level, because the big concept is actually quite big, which is that to deal with this fundamental issue of essentially how do we tax remote activity, which creates value in a country without a physical presence, uh, has required a substantial rethink of the rules. And as you said, nexus has to be part of that. But also there has to be another mechanism for determining exactly what profit it is that should be allocated. And having thought their way around this, not feeling that transfer, traditional transfer pricing was a way of doing that, they came up with this formulaic approach, which would allocate a certain amount. We don't know what the number is yet, but would allocate a certain amount of profit above a certain not margin number. And it would allocate it to destination countries, likely based on the amount of revenue, proportionate amount of revenue in that country. But because the US had said, we can't reinvent the digital economy, very clear about that from the very beginning of the BEPS project, they blew this out to include a number of other sectors under the general banner of consumer-facing businesses. So it's not just automated digital services, which is quite broad, it includes cloud as well, but also consumer-facing businesses, and not just businesses which sell directly to consumers, but businesses which produce the types of products, or indeed services for that matter, which are ultimately used by consumers. So, you know, quite a big change in the way that we think about taxation, not related to transfer pricing, formulaic approach to this, reallocation to countries without a physical presence, and aimed particularly at high-margin companies. So, Will, one of your observations, I think, is that the scope of the project is still in play and to be defined. And as it relates to industrial manufacturers, I'm hearing some in the marketplace take a view that given these companies mostly B2B models, the impact of the so-called amount A reallocation of income is likely fairly limited. On the other hand, given the ongoing adoption of digital processes on the factory floor and in order fulfillment, and the integration of sensors and other data collection mechanisms into products and processes to help manage supply chains and service equipment. There is significant concern about permanent establishment type issues in the sector and the project's proposed nexus rules. So what is your perspective on these two issues? And are there any other sleepers out there in Pillar 1 that companies in the sector should be mindful for? The B2B point is important because obviously at one level, amount A is not focused on B2B, at least not on the consumer facing side. But on the automated digital services side, clearly there are questions which are raised here. They may not be immediate questions, but you know what I've been telling people is that you do need to pay attention to this. And obviously, a lot of this is focused with the automated digital services, particularly on social media companies. But if you look at some of those points of contact, as you know, um, as some of your listeners know, I used to work for a very large uh, industrial manufacturer, which did embed sensors into things and which collected huge amounts of what we would call IoT data, Internet of Things data. In the end, the possibilities for monetizing IoT data are not that much different from monetizing social media data. And there seems to me an inevitability that if these types of rules come in, then an expansion into that area may be important. Likewise, to the extent that businesses use, as industrial businesses do, this data to help them pinpoint service needs, for example, to help improve 
industrial processes, uh, the manufacturing processes, but also help them to target customers more closely. Again, you know, you're getting very close to this edge of, of digitalization which this project essentially is aimed at in the end. So even though current amount A may not get you over that line, I think future developments will. And it's also important, we can come back to this at the end. If this project does not succeed, and there is a chance that it won't succeed, then nevertheless, you know, the, the genie is out of the bottle on destination-based taxation and on the taxation of digitalization and on the lowering of nexus thresholds. So, you know, again, even if amount A doesn't come through, I think companies need to be looking at this very, very closely in relation to unilateral actions. Thanks, Will. Let's now move to Pillar 2. In general, Pillar 2 is focused on addressing challenges that were not fully addressed by the OECD's BEPS initiative. More specifically, it is focused on that large companies pay a minimum level of tax on income regardless of where it is earned. Over recent years, we have seen more aggressive actions taken at the jurisdictional level to combat profit shifting to low-tax jurisdictions, including rules contained in the TCJA, such as BEAT, 163J and Guilty, as well as others in Europe inspired by the EU anti-tax avoidance directives. The OECD's Pillar 2 proposals look to be building on those concepts and perhaps even going a bit further. Will, what do you see as the most significant aspects of the Pillar 2 proposals? As I said right at the opening, Pillar 2, in a sense, was given permission by Guilty and Beat. And there are a number of significant features about Pillar 2, but I think the thing that most US corporations have latched onto is that there has been a lot of talk, both from our Treasury as well as from the OECD, about the fact that, that Guilty will be a whitelisted regime. There'll be a Guilty exception, more technically that guilty will be a compliant pillar two regime, and therefore payments to foreign subs of US corporations will not be subject to the income inclusion rule or the under-tax payment rule. That's sort of the headline for US corporations. However, we'll come back to that in a second, because that to me is not quite as watertight as it might sound. So what are the major features of pillar two? Well, it is, it's a minimum tax along the lines of guilty. It differs from guilty in some important respects. Good news, no expense allocation. Bad news, the ETR is worked out on a country-by-country basis rather than on a, a sort of rest-of-world aggregate basis as it is under guilty. There are actually, however, more than just the income inclusion rule and the under-tax payment rule, the under-tax payment rule being the sort of the backup rule if a country, if the ultimate parent country doesn't have an income inclusion rule, then you can apply withholding or a deeming back, a sort of what they call a reverse CFC regime. The subject to tax rule operates on an item of income basis for the effective tax rate rule. So it's a slightly different rule. So there's a lot in there. As I say, companies think if there is a guilty exception for or if guilty is a compliant Pillar 2 regime, they don't have to worry about this. But there's actually more in Pillar 2 that needs to be unpacked. That's great, Will. So let's focus again on the impact to companies in the sector and, and maybe pick up where you just left off. As I have conversations with clients and colleagues in the sector, most believe, as you just noted, that if the project moves forward, the U.S. guilty regime will ultimately be recognized as being a compliant income inclusion rule. And so they are seeing the Pillar 2 proposal as possibly increasing some costs related to compliance and reporting and likely also leading to some increased tax audit activity, but maybe not any significant incremental income tax costs. Notwithstanding, they are clearly concerned about the proposal, given the internal cost pressures many are facing 
And so the project at a minimum represents more for them to manage while their resources are being reduced. So, Will, how do you see the impact of Pillar 2 playing out on industrials? What do you see as the biggest concerns for clients in the space? And what other considerations that I have not highlighted do you think are worth a few words? Yeah, thanks, John. So, look, I agree with you that it is enormously complex uh, and that there will be um, significant further demands placed on tax departments to deal with these issues. And some of them can be very, very difficult. I mean, with the accounting, for example, if you look at the rules as they currently stand, it essentially looks like it's going to require the keeping of a third set of books. So you'll have your gap books, uh, you'll have your tax books, and then you'll have this thing in between, which could well require you to do entity-level gap accounting in order to be able to work out what the ETR is, break it down from the the audit from the global financials uh, to something like that. Uh, you can imagine the stresses and strains that that'll put on folks. That's a real issue, but there are actually also, I think, technical issues uh, or you know, br- bigger legal issues, if you will. The first is, how full is this exclusion? So guilty as a compliant Pillar 2 regime. But if countries implement the, the Pillar 2 rules in different ways, as they might well do, because this is going to be national legislation in the way the TCJA was national legislation, you can envisage squirrely things where you know they don't like QBI, for example, so that they put in some rule which allows them to apply the under-tax payment rule anyway. That's a concern. And you know, I think that we need to look at that in relation to what it is that they say about the exclusion. But there are two other things that I think everybody has to note, including industrials. The first is, this would only be for income subject to guilty in the first place. The under-tax payment rule can actually apply to payments to the home country as well. So to the extent that income is received directly into the US from overseas, that is not going to be covered by this exception. And you could envisage cases where the tax base calcs in the US were different to the tax base calcs under Pillar 2, perhaps because of amortization, or perhaps for that matter, because this is uh, FDII income in the US. And it is possible that the under-tax payment rule could apply to that. Um, So that's one issue. The other is a subject to tax rule. And it's hard to know how big this is. The OECD keeps saying it's very small, it's only developing countries. US doesn't have many treaties with developing countries. You know, I'm just worried it could become the minnow that swallows the whale if other developed countries choose to apply to their tax treaties as well. And Why would an aggressive tax authority not use that tool if they have it? And then, as I said before, working out the ETR on an item of income basis, if you're paying into a country where you have a favorable ruling, for example, which lowers the ETR below whatever rate they choose, that could be a problem for you as well. So, you know, I think actually there are a number of things. Pillar 2 is a sleeper, and I think that we need to wake up, and pretty soon, given the speed at which this thing is playing itself out. So, Will, let's talk a bit about timing and next steps in the project. The OECD outlined in its October 12th blueprints that it hopes to reach a political agreement by mid-2021. The OECD has also stated that it considers the blueprints as representing important technical progress on the architecture of the proposals. As we noted earlier, there is a public consultation period currently underway, and while meaningful progress on an ambitious project seems to have been made, the project is behind its original target dates with, as you noted, some significant issues still open for debate and discussion. So, Will, how do you see the next few months playing out, and how aggressive, in your view, is the timeline? Well, I think the timeline is still pretty aggressive, particularly as Europe heads into a second set of lockdowns, and potentially we do as well. You know, I think it's going to be harder to make progress on this. The the technical issues are very considerable, and, you know, they're relatively clear about that in the document. They don't try and hide it. So, I think on Pillar 1, that is a very ambitious timeline. On Pillar 2, They seem to think that they're closer, but there are lots of countries that want those two to travel together. So we'll see. We'll see. As far as the next few months are concerned, I think the single most important thing for industrials, for all businesses, 
is to get involved in the comment process. This is the first chance in a year, and it's probably the last chance ever, to make meaningful comments on both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And, you know, some companies may want to do that individually, but obviously if not, then there are the trade groups, there's USCIB, there's NFTC, um, there are a bunch of other trades in this country, sectoral trade groups as well, and then there's BIAC, the group that I'm involved with in Paris. And, you know, I would really encourage people to pay attention to this, to the extent that our PwC colleagues are listening in, have them reach out. You know, you should also be reaching out to your clients. This is really the only chance to point out if there are things you like, the things that you like in this, but really how things can be made better. And particularly with that point of complexity that John raised earlier, how complexity can be cut back, you know, are the simplifying things which could be done to provide shortcuts? How can we deal with this? But be involved, get involved. And December the 14th is not that far away. Okay, well, and, and so maybe the big question, what happens if the project fails? Well, the one word answer to that is chaos. Um, <laughs> It is not great if the project fails. We are well past the time when if an OECD project didn't come to fruition, everything snapped back to the way it was before. That's just not the world we live in, whether it's because of COVID, whether it's because of government spending, whether it's because of changes in perception of governments and business, because it's globalization, whatever it is, we're just not there. So the alternative to a multilateral solution are going to be a series of unilateral actions. And those unilateral actions, almost by definition, are not going to be coordinated. We're heading towards more destination-based taxation. We're heading, I hope, not too fast, towards more gross basis taxation. We are clearly heading towards minimum taxes and towards more tax-based protection. To the extent that that's going to happen, it would be preferable for everybody if that were done multilaterally in a way that people agreed with, with, as I said, simplified protocols so that there was uniform interpretation and implementation across countries. But without that, businesses face a very tricky time. Well, thank you, Will, for joining us here today and for your insights on this important topic. It seems clear that the OECD project is at a critical stage, and irrespective of whether the project is ultimately successful, changes to the international tax landscape seem inevitable, as individual territories are likely to make changes even if the OECD framework is not broadly adopted. For companies in this sector, most of which tend to have global footprints and global supply chains, this is a space worth monitoring at a minimum. And for some, as Will notes, more proactive direct engagement with the OECD process, including participating in the current public consultation, seems like a good investment. We at PwC will be watching closely to be sure and look forward to continuing discussions with clients as they consider the potential implications of the project and participating in the public consultation process. Thanks again, Will, for joining me here today. Well, John, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me onto this. Well, thanks to all for listening. And we hope to have you join us again for our upcoming podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.